Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, how are you? Good, thank you. <laughs> it's a quiet start. That was very quiet. Are you day. okay? Yeah, no. Just get used to it. Like we're past the public holiday now. Yeah, we are past the public holiday and still I see no one at work. It's just scary stuff as an owner. It's less than we the Well, look, before we get on to the cases for today, fresh off the printers or whatever you call that saying, whatever it is, there is a brand new discrimination case that we'll deal with next week, which I think is a fascinating case around disabilities about a school teacher who suffered a spinal stroke. Outside of the workplace. Outside of workplace. So not a workers' compensation claim. Had a period of well over two years for which rehabilitation was required to return him back into work. The school didn't support the um, return to work process and there has been a massive award of discrimination against the school. We talk about discrimination and the case is Purvis case, is the High Court case. When we look at what is the foreseeable future, so the test is, is the person fit for the inherent requirements of the job? Is the person fit for the inherent requirements of the job with reasonable adjustments? And the third test is if they're not fit now, would they be fit in the foreseeable future? Most courts have traditionally said, well, if you couldn't have any sort of characterisation of foreseeable future within six months, if Mm. there's that level of uncertainty, you can terminate. Here it's two years out when you return to work. So, anyhow, look, a really interesting case, which will be our topic next week, a really deep dive into it. But... Let's jump into our cases around psychological hazards. Sorry, psychology. That third cup of coffee is really playing havoc with me. Fair Work Ombudsman, the CFMEU. Yeah, so it was an. In- we have seen this before, where the union tries to use psychosocial hazards as a way <clears> to, <throat> I guess, incur further power. But in this case, I thought it was a really interesting decision. So basically, there were two stoppages at a construction site. First stoppage, they said, oh, it was unsafe because of a fire hydrant. And the second stoppage was because they said the project manager was bullying the other subcontractors and there was real risk. And it was the HSR who stopped work. Yes, the the union who were the HSRs said that all the subcontractors had to stop work immediately. So it's under old legislation, which doesn't exist anymore, specifically to the building. But essentially the main argument was the fact that Fair Gombertson said they had engaged in unlawful industrial action to shut down the site because the safety concerns couldn't be made out. So the fire hydrant, they failed to consult with him. They gave him 10 minutes to come and look at the fire hydrant. Can I say that that provision still exists under Victorian law? So the Victorian law allows an HSR to require the cessation of work but must do it through consultation. So the law isn't in one place but it's still there. So it's really important as part of it, which is... You can't just direct someone to stop. What you've got to do is do a risk assessment. Yep. You've got to engage management with it. You've got to consult to see if you can overcome. And try to actually resolve the decision. And if you don't resolve it, well, then you can. Then you can do the cessation. And then the employer's left with two choices, go directly to WorkSafe or go urgently Mm. off to VCAT or to a court to actually over. But. I can do an injunction, which is what the ABCC did in this case. Yeah. But basically they didn't meet any of those tests like the fire hydrant one I already spoke about. And then the bullying one, they found, yes, he did engage in bullying behaviour, but it was very narrow in its scope and as to who it could affect. So although that is a risk, there were other ways to have dealt with it. 
Interesting, I think, in that perspective, because I think if we look at the new regulations coming in, I don't know if they could view it through such a narrow lens. Yeah. But, yeah, basically the union got another side on the risk. Well, yeah, and we're still waiting to see what penalties will be Yeah, added. I think it'll be substantial because one of them is a repeat offender. Yeah, it's interesting throughout the school's environment at the moment, which is one of our one of our industry groups, we're seeing the IAU coming in using psychological hazards yeah. as an entry point, seeking to undertake their own investigations, running running their own world around yeah. it. It is going to become a very big issue when Victoria particularly gets their own regs and codes. We can expect through all industries a ramping up of unions using psychological hazards. So this case is a good prelude to what you do when someone starts to press and tries to stop things based on a psychological hazard, which is pull them back into consultation. If they take action, then you've got immediate cause of action. Yeah, I think the good thing when we finally do get the regs is that <laughs> we'll get some clarification because at the moment we have what we think will happen and I feel like unions are taking advantage of that mm-hmm. and they're pushing the boundaries and being like, oh, we have to do it that way. But had we got some clarifications, you know, you need to consult, you need to do this first, then you probably wouldn't see some of the really silly claims no, that we're seeing. No, we wouldn't. All right, let's go to Clark's Cranes because I, I think this is a fascinating case. <laughs> <laughs> this is a dry high of a, a crane to a site. Yeah. And there was inherent failing in part of a coupling. So when you put pressure on the load, it could spill and fall, and that's exactly what happened, and it killed one person and seriously injured another. And what Clark's Crane said is, well, we don't know where you're going to use it. People shouldn't have been underneath it. And the court goes, but your failure to identify and disclose a risk or to prevent the risk meant the risk of serious injury was so high yeah. that... Didn't matter where people were. Yeah. Now, the fine, I think, was $400,000. Yeah. And what we're talking about, because we've spoken about the case before, was when it went on appeal and, and the appeal court looked at it and went, I think you're pretty lucky. <laughs> I, think <that's laughs> what they, I think that's what they basically yeah. thought and up, upheld the fine of $400,000. Yeah, they're lucky that it increase it. I know. And look, can I just say... I think if this case happened today and we were having an appellant decision in two years' time, which is what you'd get, you'd be looking at fines significantly higher and you'd also be looking at charges significantly more serious. Yeah. So this was a primary duty breach that was alleged. It's very hard to understand how such a high-risk piece of machinery wouldn't require such a high level of scrutiny in its use. Yeah, because it was essentially a missing bolt. Yeah. Like, something that they definitely, like the most smallest thing that they could have so easily controlled. Yeah. So anyway, I, I would have thought this will be, if it happens again, a sort of six to $700,000 penalty. Yeah. But what I noticed in the first decision is there, there wasn't a high level of focus on the systems. be interesting to see how WorkSafe would go about it in future such a similar thing. But let's, let's move on. Okay. Extended notice periods. This is application by the Transport Walkers Union in Virgin. I'm right, aren't I? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, so Virgin was seeking to extend the notice period from three to seven and the court knocked it back because they said it would weaken TW's bargaining power. Yeah, so this is when you're about to take industrial action and you've only got to give three days notice, Virgin said, oh, look, we have passengers, we've got this, we've got that. Three days notice doesn't allow us sufficient time to actually be able to adjust and actually what the Fair Work Commission said is, well, that's the whole purpose of yeah. industrial action, you idiot. <laughs> <It's a tough laughs> yeah. And given that you actually do have urgent capability to yeah. actually manage it, 
it's ironic you should be coming to us and complaining about it. Yeah, it was really funny because they basically said, well, you've had to deal with this several times. So <laughs> like, like you should Taylor. be used to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Taylor and, and August. This is a oh, – I've missed one, have I? I've missed no, one. no, yeah, so this one is – um, this one was really funny. <laughs> so it was a traffic controller who was claiming that he had tripped over – I think the – a part of the fall was a bit enraged yeah. and he was trying to claim compensation because although the employee had warned him. Over how many acres site? <laughs> I can't remember. It's not, it's a significant site, but they'd warned him to be careful of his surroundings and give him induction and he said the only control they should have done is walked him around the entire site Sorry. and pointed out every <laughs> single thing that was wrong. Every tripping yeah. there's a tripping there's a there's a tripping. It was so ridiculous and the court was said, no, that's not practical at all. Like, <laughs> I can't believe he brought this case. No, no, anyway, he didn't win. That's the, that's the short answer. Yeah, he lost. Clearly from our laughter. <laughs> okay, let's go to the case that I'm more interested in. Okay, Taylor and August and Pemberton. Really, really interesting case, okay? Interesting because of the three awards and the costs that were awarded in it. So it's a fascinating case all around. This is a sexual harassment where the nature of the sexual harassment was at the lower end of the scale. And as Nina and I were talking, there is often a distinction between touch and no-touch sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. When I talk about touch sexual harassment, it's not just someone patting someone on the, on the bum. It's something Which is what happened in this case. What's yeah. happened in this case. It's a sexualised grabbing or something related to it, although I accept that patting can be that as well. In this case, there was one contentious pat. Nobody made a big issue. Even, even the complainant said she felt uncomfortable about it but wasn't distressed by it. And then there was two occasions and, and, in, and intervening occasions where the owner sought to develop a romantic relationship and raise that. And he was, gave many gifts. Yeah. Yeah, and so, like money and stuff like that. So yeah. when we look at what the general damage is, and that's for loss of amenity, loss of enjoyment in your environment effectively, I sort of put my hand on about eighty dollars to $90,000 and $140,000 rewarded. When I looked at the crazy stuff from the lawyers on the other who acted for for actually the employer who threatened, wrote back a letter to Morris Blackburn who was on the, on the side of the employee saying they were going to pursue her for stealing and some, some stuff which was just without truth. So there was this victimisation part which got to $15,000. Just because of the lawyers as well. Because yeah. of, not, not a bright thing to do. And then the question was, would aggravated damages arise given the continuity of the behaviour that being told to stop? And, yes, there was a significant award of aggravated damages that occurred. And on top of all of that, costs were awarded. Mm-hmm. So this is a very expensive case for a repeated piece of sexual harassment that left a person very discomfort and quite rightly aggrieved by the process. But by gee, you know, how easy this could have been fixed by a person, A, stopping what they did and B, their lawyers saying to them very early on, gee, settle this very as quickly yeah. as you can. I don't know why they ran it all the way. Well, it's hard to understand, isn't it? But that's that's the case. But what there was was a great observation in the middle of the case where the plaintiff's lawyers were chastised about what damages should be awarded because they were seeking significantly yeah, more. Yeah, they asked for 250k and she got 140k in damages. Yeah. And what the court said is, look, we're not looking at community standards here, we're looking at compensation. We're looking at comparative case law. We're going back and saying, what is the loss of amenity and convenience that you've suffered? And that's not what somebody thinks at a hotel. 
that's not what the Herald Sun say it is. It's actually what it is. Yeah. And so she was awarded $110,000 less than what was being sought and it was such a foolish argument to actually even run the Fender Court with when they were already... Yeah, in, they were on the front foot. Yeah, they were on the front foot. So, look, I think what that says to us, and Nina raised with me before, changes in secure jobs and respected work we're going to see a large escalation in oh, general yeah. damages claims. We're going to see aggravated damages regularly pursued for repetitive behaviour. Um, the victimisation part of this was fascinating and it just shows how cautious advisors and people need to be when someone raises a concern. As angry as you feel about it, don't get on the front foot. Don't get there and start counter-alleging particularly spurious claims. Why don't you try and resolve it? And that would have taken so much of the heat out of this and it wouldn't have gone to trial. Yeah. So there you go. I think a fascinating case and I think it's the beginning of some very big things on the plaintiff side of litigation oh, once yeah. we start agitating hostile workplaces in the middle of this. I think we'll see some very large claims. All right. Now where are we? Vision Australia. Yeah, the main topic. The main topic. Well, I've read and read this case <laughs> because to me the case is a simple proposition that says that damages at common law do not flow from breach of contract, even if the process of termination was flawed. Okay, that's what the proposition. And it comes from an old House of Lords decision. It's been repeatedly applied in Australia with two or three exceptions. The rule of law is that where a head of damage or a cause of action has been curtailed by a more senior court, a lower court like the Victorian Court of Appeal can't go around that until such time as a high court makes a decision. So in Vision Australia case, there was no doubt at all that the method of termination was unlawful. Was flawed. Yeah. yeah. And they settled the, un the unfair dismissal claim. Yeah. As part of that, there seemed to be some hidden narrative as to what was going on, which was not properly disclosed. There was a good unfair dismissal claim sitting in the middle of it. Yeah. And what the plaintiff said in this case is that process so undermined my mental health that it caused me mental health disorder. Mm. Now, this wasn't the perfect case for running a court of appeal decision to try and overturn that. But I do suspect this one's off to the High Court because, oh, yeah, I think Addis is a wrong decision. I think that any other thing that occurs during the course of employment that a reasonable person would understand could cause psychological injury would be the basis for a proper negligence claim. But because this was run on breach of contract, it was run on the basis that Vision Australia at 2006, when they employed this person, remember contract is formed at the time at which it's entered yeah. into, did they have any knowledge of his vulnerability at that time for which a breach later on could cause loss? It's a nonsense argument, but it's a matter of law, it's truthful. So if 10 days before I terminated somebody, I abused a person and they suffered mental injury, that would be compensable. But because it relates to a wrongful breach of contract, it's not compensable. And I think the High Court, when it puts its arms around that, just goes, oh, yeah, that, that, seem that is just such a nonsense. But is that because of how they brought the claim? Because it all went around the fact that the contract stipulated, like, procedural fairness that yeah, they had yeah, to do, and they didn't comply with that. So it was, like, simultaneously a breach of contract and a negligence. Oh, uh, and look, no, there was a kick-out that was run on it and they kept coming back to Addis and saying, no, we're stuck with this case law, we can't go anywhere. Oh, wow. So I think Alicia, who's the plaintiff, may not have the, the wherewithal to run it to the High Court, 
but it, it agitates an issue that needs to be run, which is if one day before you're terminated, the conduct of me towards you can allow damages, but the day in which I terminate and I fail in the manner in which I terminate can't lead to damage. It has to be a nonsense. Anyway, that's that's why I wanted to run this case today because I just talked about this case. Because it would be under workers' comp normally if you've not followed the correct procedure. Yeah. It's a bit strange. It is strange. Well, it's more than strange. It, you know, when the law gets to a stage where it differentiates by half an hour the entitlement that you can have, where one attaches to a contract and one attaches to you working, you've got to say that level of dissonance that sits between the two has got to be a nonsense. People must be able to be protected while they're at work. And if the method of termination is improper whilst they're at work, surely it's compensable. But what the court specifically said is you can't imply and read a new duty of care if there's already existing mechanisms to deal with it, which was the, the oh, contract sh- one. So you're saying that they should be able to do that? Oh, no. Well, I, what they're saying is, look, you settle that process. That existed with unfair dismissal. But unfair dismissal gives you a very small claim. It doesn't give you a multi-million dollar claim. Yeah, because originally it was 1.44 million. For which there are no general damages allowed in that. Mm. So you're not having a jurisdiction carved off. What you've got is this old House of Lords decision that simply prevents it. And that's where they fell at the end. Wow, interesting. Yeah, interesting case, really interesting case. And I wouldn't bet my house because I've recently sold it. But I wouldn't bet my house on this going to the High Court, but I'd love to see it get there because I think it's wrong. Okay. Not wrong by the Court of Appeal, by the way. Absolutely right on precedent because of the legal but like rules. morally wrong. Morally yeah. wrong and I think ultimately legally wrong. And, and I'm being pushed on by Flora, who's telling me I need to get on with the case study. Over to you. Freddie's Forks Proprietary Limited FF dry hired forklifts to warehouses throughout Melbourne. FF had a relationship with Toyota and supplied reconditioned Toyota forklifts. For Toyota, it filled a hole in its second-hand motorised plant business, and for FF, it gave them cheap forklifts that they reconditioned and hired out. FF hired out one of its eight series forklifts to Board Board. Wow a cardboard specialty manufacturer in Coburg. The 8 Series can carry up to 3,500 kilograms. The reconditioned forklift for BB had obvious wear and tear and the safety sensor system was not working. FF knew the sensor was not working and its head of supply, Conrad, who supplied the forklift to BB when asked by BB if everything was all right, said it was in good order. At the time of saying this, Conrad knew the sensor was not working and the risk that it posed. The BB warehouse had seven forklifts operating around 10 different aisles. The racking was 12 feet apart and the cardboard was packed on pallets of 48 inches. BB did not undertake a risk assessment or test the forklift before using it. On the first day of use, BB signed off on the hire order and immediately put the forklift into operation. The forklift hire agreement required BB to check the forklift thoroughly and denied liability for any unchecked failure in the forklift, the wave of liability. Harry Bright, a licensed forklift driver at BB, commenced using the forklift. He didn't do a risk assessment as required by BB policies and didn't notice the lack of a sensor or warning sounds when he commenced driving the forklift. He took a load from aisle four, drove forward with raised tines carrying the pallet to go around the corner, not being able to see what was coming, and ran over his foreman. The load crashed on top of the foreman who was pinned under the forklift, causing his immediate death. CCTV showed all drivers were driving forward well before the incident, with times often raised, preventing clear vision of hazards in front. Also, many employees were in the warehouse, forklifts passing closer than the allowed three metres. A recent audit had underlined the high risk in the warehouse, non-compliance with exclusion rules and driver misconduct. The report went to the board, who resolved to get a report for the next meeting from Head of Operations.
So this has happened, that last bit happened already yep. before the incident? Before the incident, yeah. Okay. And dry hire means you just hire the crane or the or the forklift. You don't hire a driver with it. Wet hire is when you have something with it. I know. It's How a, weird. I know, I know, I know. Why is a person make it wet? That's weird. <laughs> I don't know why a person makes it wet, but no one's ever said that to me before either. Okay, so could Freddie's Forks and Conrad be prosecuted under safety law despite the express waiver in the contract with BB? If so, what would be the offence? Yes. Yeah, it definitely could because it doesn't. Safety law doesn't care about yeah, contracts. Yeah, that's just to do with like in terms of damages and insurers, right? That's right. Like, and even even yeah. then, can I say we haven't asked this question? Would they be able to be sued? And the answer is yes. The waiver would have to be very very specific and brought home to them. So at common law, there would be a very and we talk about it more later on. At common yeah. law, the waiver would not protect. Them. Yeah, so they definitely would, as a supplier, they haven't provided something that's fit for purpose. But not only that, they actually represented that it was, there was no risk even though they knew that it was. So they're definitely in breach. So they're in breach, but the issue is could it be reckless endangerment? Now, remember, reckless endangerment is a person. It's not an employer or an employee. So for reckless endangerment. It can be Conrad. Well, no, it can be Conrad and it can a person is corporate as well, oh, so yeah. it can be Freddie Fawkes. So were they aware of a risk? That yes. could cause serious injury or death. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Nothing yeah. could be more serious in a traffic management system than having a failed sensor. Mm-hmm. So that they know the person will rely on it. Yep. They don't hear it. Bang. Were they indifferent to it? Well, they were positively indifferent yeah, to it. They did nothing. Yeah. So I think there's a real risk of reckless endangerment here. Okay. Yeah. So interesting, is it? This is something that most people who supply things don't understand that they could be off to jail. So Conrad here could be off to jail, particularly because Conrad was in a senior position, was aware of the nature of the relationship and the reliance, was aware of who he was supplying it to and of the specific risk to them. Do you still think he would get reckless endangerment had he not said it was fit? So had he said, oh, I don't know, you'll have to do a risk assessment? Yeah, it doesn't, it's that, kind yeah, of tricky. Be, yeah, I, I think it's the, the positive assertion to the something yeah. that he knows the contrary is where our regulator is at the moment. I think it's unlikely, by the way, that Conrad or FF would be charged with reckless endangerment. But what I think is in three or four years' time, he would definitely be that. So, work safe in Victoria, work safe in Queensland and South Australia are on an upward trend of prosecution. Work safe in New South Wales is really hard to predict what they're going to do. And in Western Australia, it's calamity. You'd never know what's going to happen. There's so few inspectors over there and what happens over there is curious. Tassie, there's very, very, very few, despite the high level of incidents, very, very few prosecutions in Tasmania at all. So when we look across, and ACT, of course, very strong regulator, very likely to prosecute. So there are differences in every jurisdiction where the three moving jurisdictions are which is South Australia, Victoria and Queensland, who are moving quite quickly. By the way, Northern Territory, again, quite courageous when they do prosecute, but very lowly resourced. So, But those three major jurisdictions, unlikely to go now for reckless endangerment, but you can see by the nature of the prosecutions they're doing, and you see in Victoria, you know, three industrial manslaughter in two or three months, mm-hmm. you're starting to see this elevation of charges, I suspect, in a year or two's time, we'd definitely see Frankie's forklifts and Conrad in real strong. Frankie's forklifts. Okay, could BB, its officers, and Harry be liable under safety law? And if so, what are the offences? 
Also, they will definitely get primary duty breaches because of the repeated breaches of their traffic management. Yeah. Can I just say the officers are in deep trouble? Yeah, because stage. they're aware of it. They're headboard homes. So in every jurisdiction but Victoria, they're in a lot of trouble because their objective, the objective measure, should they be aware of these risks, is enlivened. But because they have been told about in those jurisdictions, they're at a very high risk, much easier to prosecute. But in Victoria... They've been told about it, so they've got the 144, so they've got the duty that kicks up to industrial manslaughter. Again, unlikely to be charged with industrial manslaughter because they're not operational in nature that we know about. Mm -hmm. But as we've said before, the fact that they have a governance obligation makes them liable in all jurisdictions. But I don't have any doubt that the CEO most definitely is at risk of reckless endangerment in this case. Because if a board comes back to you and says, look, we've seen this, this is terrible, give us a report, and you go, give us a report? <laughs> I've seen this incredible non-compliance in the highest risk area where we're working. Give us a report. Yeah. It's nowhere near enough. And there's no follow-through or anything. So I, I'm reckoning that um, BB and Harry are looking at sort of reckless endangerment. Harry's, Harry's in a lot of trouble. Harry didn't do the risk assessment. He was obliged to do it. Mm. Harry was driving forward with his tines elevated, a strict breach. In employment law, he'd be able to say, well, look, you can't terminate me for that because everyone yeah, does it. Condone. But under safety law, that's not the way it works. Safety law holds those people to account to teach everybody else. So I think Harry's in real trouble and Harry is the voice of BB. So if Harry's reckless endangerment, BB is reckless endangerment. And I think the CEO, certainly an operational officer, seized with that knowledge of what is the problem that went to the board, I think they're in real strife as well. So messy. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Could BB and FF be liable under the Wrongs Act, which is the extension that's like workers' compensation? When someone dies, the dependents can bring a claim for the loss of a breadwinner effectively. So would the waiver come into play now? Well, the argument is so the first claim under workers' compensation would go directly towards BB. BB would seek um, recovery actions against FF. Mm -hmm. FF would plead the waiver and there would be a huge fight around the um, what was said by Conrad would blow yeah. the waiver. Yeah. And I think you'd find that both would be liable and there'd be a sharing of responsibility. I think that you'd see... BB wearing about 70% of the liability and FF earning about 30% of the liability. But then the waiver would be more effective had they disclosed that there is a risk and they still have to do a risk assessment. Well, yeah. I think depending on the nature of the waiver and whether it was brought home to them, so one of the rules of waiver is, A, it has to cover all circumstances of the risks, but it can never, so the it's a case called the Lifesavers case. You can, if you say, including express misrepresentations, then the waiver might have worked. Okay? Yeah, okay. But most waivers don't. They might say negligence but not express. So whatever it is, I think that FF would be found liable in part and they'd certainly want to settle it. Yeah. So next week we're going to get right into discrimination because I, I think it's a good time to do it. Yeah. We're heading towards Christmas, which is always a good harassment <laughs> discrimination time. But it's really interesting seeing how different parts of the law which have been quiet up until secure jobs and respect at work, and now starting to see some cases pre that legislation, and, of course, it doesn't affect the case we're talking about is the Victorian Equal Opportunity, so didn't touch that jurisdiction because it was federal jurisdiction to touch. We're going to see some very big changes. We're going to see people moving to the federal jurisdiction every single time 
but across order in Victoria, most unusual. Okay. Yeah. So let's look at that as well and see what's going on about this one. Yeah. Okay. Cool. See you next week. Thumbs up. Thank Don't forget. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye.